Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. If you don't have a Bible, please do grab one in the seat pocket in front of you or around you so that you can follow along as we work our way through this text. This is the text that the Lord in his providence has given us to focus on this morning. And, uh, and God has you here for a reason. And so this is the text that he wants you to hear as well this morning. Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. Again, grab a Bible around you so that you can follow along. And this is the last section in Luke chapter 23. By the way, I think it was this Sunday, it's this Sunday, or, or I think maybe last Sunday marks four years in the book of Luke. And, um, and so we've spent some time in this. This is um, also, I want you to know, I discovered this past week uh, through talking with Bo that um, this is uh, the longest book in the New Testament in terms of words, and certainly uh, the most intricate narrative in the New Testament in terms of details. We have Luke the physician giving us uh, quite a few details. He is, um, he's wordy. And, uh, and so he's given us a lot of information here. It also marks close to the top 10 longest books in the entire Bible. Um, if you include the Old Testament, I think Luke's about number 12 and, um, in terms of words. And uh, plus, if you know anything about the biblical um, uh, genres, narrative is also always a different beast when you're talking about getting to the main point or the main teaching or doctrine of that section. Uh, narrative is, is, is different than, say, um, understanding an epistle um, in terms of explaining the doctrine that's being taught in there. And so all of that to just say to you, I think you've learned and grown probably more than you know uh, during this, this time in Luke and uh, I know that it will continue to bear fruit in your life. And so we have, uh, we've been a church for just about six years, a little over, and we've been in the book of Luke for just a little over now, four years. And so this book has certainly characterized our church in, in many ways. And, uh, and so um, praise God that uh, he's done this work. And next week, we'll be starting chapter 24, the last chapter of this book. So... With all that being said, let's begin, as we always do, by reading the text, Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. Read along and follow along with your eyes as I read. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb and cut it, that was cut in stone where there was no one had ever yet been laid. And it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb 
and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So this is the text we're in. And what we're seeing in these verses here, in this section here, what we're seeing is the burial of Christ. The burial of Christ. That's what's being explained here. That's what Luke is teaching us about here. The burial of Jesus Christ. That's why I've entitled this sermon, The Burial of God's Christ. Because this is the account And this is the main point that Luke is giving to us. He's giving us the account of Christ's burial. And I want to make note, the reason why I put, and I added, God's Christ here to this title. And by the way, that's exactly who he is. Remember when Peter confesses in Luke chapter 9, and he's kind of bringing everything to a culmination. Remember this? Uh, Confirming what the, the first Nearly nine chapters of the book of Luke was about. Um, he's bringing everything to a culmination, and uh, which the first nine chapters are just testimony after testimony, witness after witness, proof after proof that this Jesus, who we're now learning about in these first nine chapters, is indeed the Christ, the, the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one, the coming shepherd king, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And so to establish and confirm this after the first nine chapters, remember what Peter confesses in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, Jesus asks Peter, but who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? He says, the Christ of God, the Christ of God. This is God's Christ. God is behind this man. God has sent this man. This is the man of God. This man is God. This is the one who God planned to send. God sent him. God is fulfilling his prophecies and his promises in this one. God will save his people through this one. God will establish his kingdom through this one. The word of this one is true. God is orchestrating every detail of the work being accomplished by this one. And ultimately, this one will accomplish God's will and God's plan in salvation. So Jesus really is God's Christ. That's what Peter was establishing after the first nine chapters. And we've just continued to see proof after proof throughout the book of Luke that this is God's Christ. Now, the reason why I included this in the title when we're dealing with the burial of Christ is because just as much as anywhere else in all the Bible, just as much as the testimony of his birth, just as much as the the proof of his miracles, just as much as his teachings, Just as much as the events surrounding the Last Supper, the events surrounding the arrest, the events surrounding the trials, just as much as in every stage that we've read about in the crucifixion, just as much as all of those places, the burial of Christ, which is often overlooked, makes just as clear that this is God's Christ, that God is in complete control that God had planned this, that this is God's sovereignty on full display. This burial confirms his Messiahship. It vindicates him as the Christ. It, It vindicates his words and his claims to be the Christ. It shows the truth and the trustworthiness of scripture. 
and, uh, and all of its prophecies. This truly is the burial of God's Christ. That's what we're witnessing. And the scriptures today will make this clear. The burial is a testimony once again to who he is. So we're going to jump right in here. And now it's important because I want to make mention of this, that the burial account is so instrumental in terms of its testifying to all the things that I just mentioned, that all four gospel writers give us this account. And really, incredibly, all of them focus really on the same essential aspects. You can go back and read them later. We'll jump around just a little bit. But they give this essential portion, this, this really the same aspects of this story. But listen now, okay? John adds a little bit of material on the front end to the burial account. And Matthew adds a little bit of material on the back end to this burial account. So it gives us a real wonderfully good picture here of, uh, and full picture here. And so what we're going to do today, our headings today, will also focus on those other portions. Okay, so we're going to see a little bit of John's narrative on the front side. We're going to see then Luke, which is our text here. And then we'll go to Matthew and see a little bit of the information on the back side. So we're going to see today as we walk through and make our way through this burial account, we're going to see three three things today. We're going to see confirmation in John's account, John 19, 31 through 37. We're going to see confirmation. Number two, we're going to see consent in Luke 23, verses 50 through 56. And then thirdly, we're going to see control in Matthew 27, 62 through 66. Okay. Confirmation, consent, Control. Let's start with the confirmation. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. That's where we'll begin this morning as we look at this burial account. And John gives us a little information here on the front side. And, uh, and as we see this, at this point, let me tell you where we've been just very briefly. This is really, listen now, just since Thursday afternoon, okay? Just since Thursday afternoon, uh, Jesus has shown his divine control in the preparation for the Passover meal. Remember that whole story? He, he's made clear the substitutionary atoning death during the meal. I mean, he made that crystal clear. I'm the Passover lamb, Right? Substitutionary atonement. You can avoid God's judgment through the death of an innocent substitute. I'm that substitute. He's made that pretty clear. He's expressed complete devotion to the Father's sovereign plan in prayer. He's made clear his divine nature and yet his willingness to surrender during his arrest. This is all since Thursday. He's been shown to be perfectly innocent in seven illegitimate trials. By the way, seven in the scriptures represents completion. I don't think it's coincidence here that God had seven trials to verify to us Christ's innocence. He is completely, what? Innocent. We've seen the journey to the cross. We've seen his time on the cross. We've seen his death on the cross. And only here by early, really, Friday afternoon... Jesus is going to be buried. And all of this was according to a divine timeline. All of this. Christ needed to be killed on the Passover. 
as God's Passover lamb in the grave by sundown Friday so that he would be in the grave touching all three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And he would rise then. And so we get the first idea here in terms of Christ's burial. Um, we, we get this idea on the front end from John's gospel, a clear confirmation first of his death. We've talked about his death. Bo preached on it. But we get here from John on the front side of his burial, a real confirmation of his death. Now, this is extremely important, as you can imagine, because without the true death of Christ, there's no atonement for sin. And without the true death of Christ, there's no what? Resurrection. You can't rise from the dead if you hadn't died. Right. And so, in fact, one of the main arguments against Christ's resurrection is that he wasn't truly dead. And so with the scriptures, they're going to say otherwise here. And by the way, two other main objections to the resurrection is that uh, are that Jesus, his disciples went to the wrong tomb. That's really the second main uh, objection or the leading women and the disciples. They went to the wrong tomb. And the third main objection is that Jesus's body was stolen. So you got, he didn't really die. They went to the wrong tomb, made a mistake. And third, uh, his body was stolen by his disciples, which by the way, those other two, they're going to be debunked here in, um, in this burial account as well, as we make our way through today. So all three really are going to be disproven. And so we see first now the confirmation of Christ's death. He really died. Let's look at this. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture say, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so we see here as we begin this confirmation of Christ's death. And really, as we think through this, since it was the day of preparation, verse 31, look at it. Since it was the day of, of preparation, that means to eat the Passover meal, to prepare and to eat the Passover meal. They were going to do it that day. And uh, remember, Jesus died at the time that the Passover lambs would, would die, right? Those from southern Israel uh, would slaughter the lambs on this day. And Jesus died at that exact time. And uh, that was, again, a divine timeline where God orchestrated everything perfectly uh, that Jesus would die at that time. And uh, they would eat the Passover meal that afternoon. So they had something to do, right? They, they had something to do, the Jews did on this day. Okay, it was the, verse 31, it, since it was the day of preparation. In other words, the Jews had something to do this day. They had somewhere to be. They got to get home so they can eat the Passover meal. They had prepare, been preparing earlier this day. And now later on here, they, they got to be home so they can, so they can eat this, this meal. And, uh, and so they had something to do not to defy the law. But there was more. And uh, also because it was the Sabbath day, it says here, and um, 
And the Sabbath day, uh, um, he, that they would not, Jesus would not remain, our bodies would not remain on the, on the cross during the Sabbath, it says in verse 31. So it's the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross until uh, um, during the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was approaching, and it was the day of preparation, okay? And so they wouldn't want the body to remain on the Sabbath, because at sundown it would be Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath. So we're getting close now to the Sabbath because the sun's about to go down and then this body would still be up on the tree on the Sabbath. And especially this Sabbath, because if you look at verse 31, it says, for that Sabbath was a high day, which is simply the special Sabbath during the week of Passover. So that Sabbath on the week of the Passover was called the high day. And that was a special Sabbath. And so this was the, the week of the Passover. The body was on the tree. Uh, they, they didn't want uh, to defile their Sabbath, and they had somewhere to be uh, that evening. And so there's also a third reason that they wanted this body off the tree. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 says that according to the Jewish law, here's what it says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land. This man's cursed. These, these ones who have hung on the tree, uh, been killed for their crimes, they are representative of God's cursing and we won't have curse, uh, our land become cursed. So really, in their hypocrisy, they've, um, they've broken, listen now, the Jews have broken the Jewish law time and time again, right? Think about this, especially in the trials. They've just killed the Son of God. The, the Messiah that they claim to be looking for, they just crucified. They're gonna break a few more laws by the time that this account is done, like they're gonna go into Pilate's quarters on the Sabbath, Etc. things that they shouldn't do. And yet here, these Jews are trying to avoid being declared ceremonial, uh, ceremonially unclean and avoid ceremonial defilement by getting this man off, off the tree. The, the, uh, uh, the, the, the day of preparation, the Sabbath is quickly approaching and they won't leave a, a cursed man to defile their land on the tree. And yet they have broken God's law continually. They've avoided uh, what God says in his word. This is the false, religious, heretical, unregenerate hypocrisy on full display at this point. And they just really wanted Jesus done and over. They just wanted to move on here. And so they want Jesus off the tree. By the way, false religion always picks and chooses what it listens to and what it obeys. That's that's really evidence of one who doesn't know Christ, doesn't know the word, who has a, a real false religion, is that they, they see the word and they pick and choose what they want to obey when they want to obey it. And as soon as it doesn't work out for their life pragmatically, then they'll avoid obeying what it says. Well, this is certainly the case with these Jewish leaders. Uh, they're going to obey God. They don't want to defile themselves, but they'll only obey God in the areas that they want to obey God uh, to where it doesn't adversely affect their lives. And so this is the picture here. Now, verse 31, as we continue to look at it, um, the Jews then asked Pilate that their, what? 
legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. And uh, the soldiers, listen now, they were precise. These Roman soldiers, they were precise, precise experts in execution. They knew how to kill people, okay? They were Italians. (laughs) And they knew when people were dead. And they had joy at killing, in killing people. And, um, and after the crucifixion, on most occasions, they would allow people to stay on the cross. They would just allow, allow them to be up there for hours upon hours to allow the most suffering possible and to allow the most civilians to pass by to be able to see this man hanging on a tree so that they could be aware of their crime and then make sure that these civilians who see it wouldn't dare to commit a crime similar. But here, because of the rush of the trials, because of the rush of everything, and because this is really actually uncalculated bad timing for the Jews, they want it. You know, you, you ever do something so fast, you just you don't think about the timing. You kind of just want it done so quickly that you kind of put yourself in the bad spot because you want it done then and there and now. Well, that's exactly what they've done. They just want this thing done. They're not going to wait till after the Sabbath to kill Jesus. They want him dead. If they got an opportunity with Pilate, they want to kill him. And so they don't take into account that the Sabbath is quickly approaching, that they're going to have to eat the Passover, that they're going to take this man down because of the law about taking a cursed man off the tree. So now they're in a bad spot. And this, is, this for them is, is bad timing. It's late in the day on Friday. And so instead of leaving this person up on the tree, it's the day of Passover. The, the Sabbath is quickly approaching. They want Jesus to die immediately so they can take him off the tree and carry on with their hypocrisy. Go eat the Passover meal, feel real good about themselves. Keep the Sabbath, feel real good about themselves. Then move on after the Sabbath. Jesus is dead and now they're high flying. You see, because Jesus is dead, they've eliminated their threat. But Jesus here, we know, is already dead. At this point, he's already dead. He died, listen now, in just over six hours. John 19, 14 says that Jesus was handed over by Pilate to be crucified around 6 a.m. And Matthew 27, 45 through 50 tells us that from then about noon... Until about three, there was darkness over the land. And around 3 p.m., Jesus yielded up his spirit. This was faster than normal. This is faster than it would typically take a crucified man to die. This happened more quickly than normal. And there's a reason why God made this like this. It's so that we would all know very clearly that Jesus wasn't a helpless victim. Look at verse 30 in our same text in John's account, John chapter 19, just a a verse earlier in the previous section. It says, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. And that confirms, of course, what John 10, 18 says, that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down And I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my father. In other words, Jesus didn't ultimately die because he was overpowered and because he bled out. He died because it was his father's charge. It wasn't uh, because at this time he he was at the mercy of the, the Roman executioners. They didn't have complete control. Jesus had complete control of his own life and he died at the exact time that he knew that he would die and chose to die. 
And so he, this is his father's charge. He, he laid down his own life on his accord. He has divine authority and ability, unlike us. Listen now, he simply can give up his spirit and die when he decides to die. That's a divine attribute here. Of course, fully God, fully man. God in himself doesn't die. But as Jesus became fully a man and yet fully God, he has the right to give up his spirit whenever he wants. This also shows that he has the divine ability, unlike us, to give himself life again. He can give his spirit up on his own accord, on his own timing, because of his own choice, and he has the ability to give himself life again, unlike us. So this authority of giving up his own spirit on his own accord, it not being taken from him, is even an important element in terms of understanding the authority of the resurrection. The fact that Jesus died in a more quick, uh, in, uh, uh, in a way that was, that was quicker than normal for, for those who were crucified because he gave up his own spirit, he wasn't just subject to bleeding out, is an important element to notice because it speaks to his even authority to raise himself up again, right? And so the, the, the Bible speaks of Jesus raising himself, the Bible speaks of the Father raising him, and the, the Bible speaks of uh, the Holy Spirit raising him. You say, well, which one is it? And the answer is yes, right? And so... Jesus has the authority. So he, this, this death happened more quickly because Jesus chose when to give up his spirit here and proving that he's God. No one else has that same authority to give up his spirit, to give up his, his life whenever he wants. Gen, John 10, 18 says again, all of this was part of the charge that Jesus had from the father to give up his life and then he would to come back to life to accomplish salvation. So it matters that this happened faster than normal because it's pointing us to Christ giving up his life willingly. So we have the testimony from John here in verse 31 um, or, or in verse 30 that Jesus is, is dead, already dead. He, gave, he, he gives up his spirit here, right? And uh, the Jews then ask for the, the, the legs might be broken to, for uh, Jesus and the other criminals who were on the tree that they might be taken away. And, um, but we see here, there's going to be more confirmation. John has already told us, I just showed you in verse 30, that Jesus gave up his life. That's John's testimony of Christ's death, okay? But the, the testimony, the confirmation continues. And by the way, as I told you here in verse 31, as he talks about the legs being broken, I've told you about this before, but breaking of the legs of the one being crucified is called curaphragium. And you do it with an iron mallet. And what it does is it adds to the wounds of the victim. But here's what it does. It breaks the legs of the victim so that the victim can no longer push up on the nails that are driven into his feet to gasp for air, right? And then so he dies of asphyxiation when his strength gives out in his arms to be able to pull himself up. And then he dies. And so this just makes the death happen more quickly. You break the legs, he can't push up, and his arm's strength gives out, and he can't breathe anymore. And so he, he dies. So this is what they want to happen, and this is going to make it happen more quickly. Look at verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Right? So the other criminals are still what? Alive. 
Jesus died more quickly than, than the other criminals. The other criminals are still alive. The soldiers came to break the legs. They broke the legs of the first criminal. They broke the legs of the second one. One of those was the one who repented and trusted in Christ and, uh, and believed, right? And so we know that, uh, that this is what, the, 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 these two were, were alive and they, their legs were broken. And, and so then when we come to Jesus, verse 33, it says this, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already what? Dead. They did not break his, his legs. They came to Jesus. They saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. And now John's already given us account that Jesus yielded up his spirit. He's dead. Now this is confirmed by the Gentile Roman soldiers. They came to Jesus to break his legs and they saw that he's already dead. So we have another confirmation of his death here, which is really incredible here too, because it's also the reason why they didn't break his legs, which ultimately points us to Jesus's atoning death. You say, how did them not breaking Jesus's legs point us to Jesus's atoning death, his sacrifice being a, a substitutionary atoning death for those who would repent and believe and be therefore be saved. How does that point us to that? Well, you guys know Exodus twelve forty six: the sacrifice must not have any of their leg, uh, of their bones, what? Broken. And so this points us to Jesus being a sacrifice. He's God's sacrifice. He's the permanent sacrifice. He's the true blameless. He's the one without blemish. And he's the one who dies permanently for the sins of of mankind, but he is a true sacrifice. But it also points us to Psalm 34, which I read earlier this morning for our call to, call to worship. So again, this points us to the confirmation of who, of who Christ is. Remember, it says that he keeps all his bones. This is many messianic prophecy. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And, he, uh, and it goes on to say that the Christ... Uh, um, he was being condemned as one who was wicked and yet not condemned by God and his life was being raised, raised up. And so we see here this confirmation of his death. John says he gave up his spirit. Uh, the, the soldiers see that he's already dead. The fact that they didn't break the legs points us to the fact that this is God's sacrifice and that he truly is fulfilling everything that God had planned for him. But this confirmation goes even further because if we look at verse 34... Follow along, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Now, why would they do this? Well, I've taught you before, the way to confirm the death with these precise uh, killers is that they would precisely pierce the body into the side and they would pierce it so far as to it would just touch the heart. And, uh, and as they pierced the side and the heart, if the, the criminal was dead, it would result in a flow of blood and what? Water. Serous pleural and pericardial fluid. It, it would verify that this person was dead. This is what Zechariah 12.10 says, of course, again about the Messiah. It says what would happen to him, to the Messiah, the Jews would realize what they've done and they would look upon the one who in, uh, whom they had what? Pierced. Once again, this death confirming his messiahship and confirming his death at the same time. 
all of this to provide irrefutable evidence to confirm Christ's literal death and that he indeed is the Christ, the Messiah. This is God's sovereign plan. He's in complete control. Uh, the scriptures are, are, are shown to be true and trustworthy, all of this in this account. And it confirms God's sovereignty and control. And this is exactly what the purpose is. Because look at verses 35 through 37. You say, well, does that really? Well, John just tells us. Verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. Here's the purpose of all of this confirmation about Christ's actual, literal death. Look at this. That you may, what? Believe. That you may believe. He is giving this account that you would believe for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. He's interpreting it for us. He's saying, I just showed you this. Let me just interpret it for you. Remember the, the scriptures say not one of his bones will be broken, but I just told you that they didn't break his legs. Right? And again, verse 37, I have read both of these Old Testament passages to you that I'm citing here from Psalm 34 and Zechariah 12. And again, another scripture say they will look on whom they have what? Pierce. I'm interpreting this for you. He, they, they pierced the side. Remember? Well, they said of the Messiah, they're going to look on the one whom, whom they've pierced. And so here is this confirmation, confirmation that this is the Christ, that God's in control. He's behind this. This is God's Christ. This was truly the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior, the Shepherd, the King, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. This was happening on a divine timeline, and he is, in fact, dead. That's what's here. Now, there's even more I could show you. There's Mark's account, confirmation then in Mark chapter 15, when Joseph of Arimathea, which we're going to see a little bit in a moment, goes to Pilate to request the body be given so what happens is the, the Jews, they go to uh, the Jew, Jewish leadership, they go to Pilate and they say, we want the legs to be broken. We just read that, right? Well, it's probably right after, right after. They're probably coming out and, and, uh, and Joseph of Arimathea is probably coming in. Maybe they went in two different doors and see each other. And Joseph of Arimathea comes right in after that and, and Pilate says he's already dead. It says Mark, in cha Mark chapter 15, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Uh, the Jews just came asking to, to break the legs so that he would die quick. And Joseph of Arimathea comes in and says, he's dead. Can I have his body? And, and so again, even Pilate here, he, he's confirming. And this, this testimony with Pilate is confirming his death. And, uh, and then so what Pilate does is he sends a centurion to confirm his death. He says, go check out if he's dead and come back to me. And so, um, and so you got the, really the testimony of now Pilate and, and, and the centurion. And so, and these are, these are neutral parties. And so this is, this is just testimony after testimony. You heard the testimony of John, verse 30. You got the soldiers, reason for not breaking the legs. You got the confirmation of the piercing in the side. You got the Gentiles like Pilate and the centurion. Not to mention the upcoming account of Joseph of Arimathea taking away the body, the women being involved. Even, even Nicodemus here in just a minute is gonna be involved and dealing with a dead body. And so all you have here is just confirmation. Confirmation of his death and confirmation of his Messiahship. This is the Christ, and he's dead. This is the Christ, and he's dead. We've seen the confirmation. Let's look at the consent. 
Turn with me, if you can, to Luke chapter 23. This is our text for today, really. Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. This is the consent. Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. You got a dead Messiah. Let's look at what happens to him. Now, there was a man named Joseph. Luke 23, 50 through 56. There's a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone. There was no one had ever yet been laid uh, where no one had ever yet been laid. And it was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women had come with him from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. So Jesus is confirmed to be dead. And now here's the next stages in God's plan. You ready? The next stages in God's divine plan involves a burial. It involves a burial. And to do that, God moves in the heart of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And he positions him. He puts him into place. And this is the one to whom Pilate will give consent to take his body. We got the confirmation. Now we got the consent. Verse 50, we read this. We read, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. And so we know a little bit about Joseph here. Joseph, he's a Jewish man. He's from the town of Arimathea, which we don't know much about, and he's a member of the council. What that means is that he's part of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the 71. The 71 Jewish religious leaders who make up the Sanhedrin, we've heard a lot about Sanhedrin past little bit, hadn't we? We feel like we know them pretty well by now. And so, uh, and so this man was, was there um, during the trials, at daybreak especially, when they took him from uh, when they took him to the Sanhedrin at daybreak before they took him to Pilate, right? And they conducted this, uh, this, this quote-unquote official trial at daybreak that then they would bring him to Pilate. He was there. But it says here that he's a good and righteous man in uh, verse 50. He's a good and righteous man. And, uh, and so this righteousness here is, is signif- uh, significant. It's not a righteousness that this man had on his own, but a righteousness that's speaking of here that had been given to him. A righteousness that has been given to him, it's, 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 it's true belief. It's signifying here, Luke's telling us here, this man is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he believed that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the, the long-awaited Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. This man is a believer, He's part of the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin, the leading council, the, the makeup of, of the 71. And he, and he believes that this man, Jesus, is indeed the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. In fact, John's account in 1938, just a little bit after where we were just reading in John's account, it says very plainly, it says that this man was a disciple of Jesus. And here in Luke's account in verse 51 as we move on, he says there, the, this man, Joseph, Jewish man, town of Arimathea, we don't know much about. He's a member of the council. It means he's part of the Sanhedrin. He's a good and righteous man. He'd been given righteousness through his following of Jesus Christ. Verse 51, who had not consented to their decision and action. 
He had not consented. What does that mean? Well, it's pretty clear. He didn't consent to their decision about Christ's guilt and their action of how they treated him and their decision to bring him to Pilate and their accusation of blasphemy and their mistreatment of him, their mockery of him, their demanding of him to be crucified, their taunting of him along the way. He hadn't given consent to any of that. He was part of the 71, but he wasn't part of the 71. And so in 1938, John 1938, the disciple, it says he's a disciple, but it says that, it, but, he, but he is a disciple in secret in John's account, John 1938. He says he's, he's a secret disciple. Now, typically in scripture, if you're a secret disciple, you're no disciple. That's why baptism is so important because part of, uh, of testifying to true salvation is that you come public with your faith, right? But there's a different situation when there's true and real persecution. This man here is really for fear of the Jews, it says in John 19, 38, he was a disciple in secret. So for a short time, because of, of the threat of persecution, this man's an underground disciple. He's an underground disciple. Jesus, of course, knew it while he was alive. I wonder what kind of interactions they had. He's an underground disciple. And uh, for, for, for true fear of, of, of physical threat and persecution. And Mark's account, it says that this man is a respected member of the council. And so this, is, this man is one of the highest of the 71. He's a respected man. You got these guys coming from different sects of the Jewish religious leadership. You got some that are Pharisees, some that are Sadducees, some that are scribes, etc. And then you got the high priest. And so this man here is actually, and so they would kind of despise one another, though they made up the, the 71 of the Sanhedrin. But this man here is a respected man. He's respected by all. We don't know much more about him except that he is one of the Sanhedrin and he's well-respected. And this man becomes a believer in Christ, an underground disciple for a little while because of the threat of persecution. And so all four gospel accounts mention him by name and the town in which he comes from, indicating that the readers would know who he is. That's the reason why they do that. Readers are gonna know who, who he is. And so it further validates this account further validates because the readers reading would say, oh yeah, Joseph of Arimathea, that, that guy? Yeah, he handled the burial. Well, verse 53, there's a little bit more here. Look at this. It says, uh, or I'm sorry, at the end of verse uh, 51 here, at the end of verse 51, it says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. That's pretty simple, okay? What that means is he's looking for the Messiah. He's waiting and so here's what's being told of us. There's this Jewish man, member of the Sanhedrin. He's a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's been given righteousness. He, he, he's in secret due to the threat of persecution. And just to confirm that this man is saved, it tells us that he was looking for the kingdom of God, meaning this, he's looking for the Messiah. He was waiting for the Messiah. He had been observant, looking for the anointed one, the coming one, the, the savior. He's looking for the Messiah's rule. This points to the genuineness of his salvation. In other words, he recognized the time of his visitation. He'd been looking for the kingdom and he realized when Jesus came that this is the one. This is the one. 
This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. And so it's clear here, this man's a believer. Verse 52 says, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So he goes to the Pilate, asks for the body of Jesus. Seems to be that it's time to bring Joseph's faith to the surface. Perhaps at this point, he's ready to renounce the evil. He saw the, the, the crucifixion. He saw the, the killing and the murder of the son of, of God. And it's time for this man, perhaps, he's ready at this point to renounce all the evil of the Sanhedrin, be seen as a follower of Jesus, regardless of the consequences. Because this is gonna be obvious. He wanted to make his election sure by following Christ, no matter the cost. By the way, there's really no category for nominal Christianity. There's just no category for it. I think we allow it a lot of times in the church. Oh yeah, they're a believer in Christ. They're just living in sin apart from the church. No, right? And so you, we allow for this category. When the scriptures say, you gotta make your election sure. Prove to be a disciple of Jesus Christ by living obediently. There's no category for a believer who doesn't live like that. And so just an encouragement to you, don't live like that. Work out your salvation with fear and what? Trembling. Not that you're earning your salvation, but you're proving it. You're giving evidence of it. And so this man here, he, he wants to make his election sure, I'm sure. No matter the cost, the Jews are going to certainly found out, find out about this because they're going to know whose tomb he's buried in. They're going to know whose tomb Jesus is buried in. They're going to watch Jesus, Joseph remove him from the cross. Joseph is going to defile himself by going to Pilate, and he's going to certainly miss the Passover meal by getting him off the cross, and he's going to defile himself by taking him off the cross because he's going to get all bloody. I mean, so you just see him taking him off the cross here, asking for his body. He, he's just basically renouncing everything that would, uh, that would be required of him to be part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He's gonna defile himself all over the place. It just points to the fact he's renouncing all of this. He's ready to follow Christ. Mark 15 says at this point, Pilate's again surprised. I said that, uh, said that to you. At, at this really point in the narrative, he's surprised when, when Joseph comes to him that he's dead. Mark tells us that... Uh, um, that uh, the centurion goes and confirms. And then, um, and so again, the, Joseph's coming in, the, the, the Jewish leadership's going out to go break the legs. And then it tells us that Pilate consented here. He's probably intimidated by the Jews at this point. He, he, listen, he probably wants to make up for his own guilty conscience. And so he looks at this Jewish man, Joseph of Arimathea, and he says, yeah, you could take the body, take the body and show some respect to you guys and show some respect to Jesus. That's not true repentance. That's not true repentance. It's a worldly sorrow. It doesn't lead to life. It just continues to lead to death. We have no evidence of Pilate's actual true repentance, but he consents here. He orders that the soldiers allow the body to be taken. Verse 53, if you look at it, it says, then he took it down and wrapped it in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut from cutting the stone. In other words, Joseph took the body off the tree. He had to take down the body off the, the cross. It involves pulling the spikes out of the wrists and the feet. It involves removing the crown of thorns from the head. Certainly involves him becoming extremely bloody. You can't even touch Jesus at this point without getting your hand all bloody. He's full of blood. 
it, 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 it involves defiling yourself because you're dealing with a cursed body. So now you're dealing with a body that, that has been declared cursed by God. You're taking him off the tree. You're cleaning the body. It involves cleaning him. It involves wrapping him in linen. It involves sacrificing of his own goods like the spices. It involves laying him in his own tomb and it involves sealing the tomb. Matthew 12, 27 tells us that this man is a rich man. And so he owns his own tomb. And this is certainly where he planned to, to lay himself and his family when he died. You don't just own tombs. This man owned a tomb, a, a perfectly uh, good tomb that was cut in the rock. And he was going to lay himself and his family there. So it's a little cave-like and it had never been used. And then John 19, 39 tells us some information here at this point that's pretty interesting is that Nicodemus, he comes and he's a help. Remember Nicodemus, the other religious leader? No doubt he's friends with Joseph of Arimathea. Maybe Nicodemus is part of the Sanhedrin. We're not told. But you remember, he's the one in John chapter three that Jesus told him how to enter into the kingdom. He was another man that was obviously looking for the what? Looking for the kingdom, looking for the Christ. And remember what Jesus told him? He says, here's how you enter into the kingdom. You must be born, what? Again, Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born again? I gotta go back in my inside my mom's belly. You know, well, we have pretty clear evidence that, that Nicodemus, he came to understand what it means to be born again, right? Holy Spirit enlightened his, his eyes, opened his mind, his heart. At first, he's asking these questions. What, what do you mean, Jesus, be born again? Well, how do I enter the kingdom? Well, it's clear he entered it. It's clear he understood what it means to be born again because he comes to help. And uh, he brings, it says, about 75 pounds worth of spices. What they do is they wrap the body a little bit after cleaning it, put spices between the, the strips of linen, wrap it a little bit more, more spices between the strips of linen, wrap it a little bit more, continue on to overpower the stench. Overpower the stench. So listen now, there's an incredible principle here. These two prominent men, two leading men, two Jewish men, two wealthy men, Two respected men sold out for Christ, willing to suffer persecution, willing to go public with their faith, willing to sacrifice their resources. They give up about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, give up their grave. These leading men leaving the world and like worthy disciples serving their Lord and Savior. That's true manhood. That's true manhood. These are men of God. These are men of God. These are the first two that take this, the, their Lord's body. They sacrifice of themselves. They come out public, even though the threat of persecution is looming at their door. They give up their resources to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. These are true godly men, true godly men. And they are proving the truthfulness of their salvation. John goes on then um, in his and, and, um, and tells us that this garden, uh, this tomb was in a, in a garden and, uh, 
and it was a place where, uh, where he was, uh, there was, it was near the place where he was crucified. And that's where Joseph's tomb was. The tomb was close at hand and the Sabbath was approaching. So listen now, John tells us that the, that the tomb is in a garden that's near the place of the crucifixion. And the Sabbath was quickly approaching, so they had to do this rather quickly. 3 p.m. he died, so around 5 or 6, it's got to get dark. And then it switches to Saturday, so they don't got a lot of time here. Don't got a lot of time here. So we're back in here in this, in this Luke text here, Luke chapter 23. And then we're looking now at verse 54 as we go on, right? Laid him in the tomb, cut uh, in stone, verse uh, the end of verse 53, no one had ever been laid. These two leading men, we know Nicodemus is there, as I told you from the other accounts. And then verse 54, it was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. I mean, it's beginning. The Sabbath is about to begin. It's getting close here, right? God's divine timeline. He had to be in the grave before the end of the day Friday. Matthew 12, 40 tells us just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, Jesus also would be in the grave three days. So God's fulfilling his word here, showing once again that he's in complete control, that this is on a divine timeline. I mean, he, his sovereignty is on full display display. He's showing the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of scripture, confirming that Jesus is indeed the Christ, right? He, Isaiah would write hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. In Isaiah 53, 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. I mean, this is just further confirmation, even in the burial account of his divinity and God's sovereign control in this burial. He is confirmed dead. He is confirmed the Messiah. Again, here we see this confirmation over and over. Verse 55, look at it now. It says, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. In other words, listen, these people saw the tomb. They saw how the body was laid. This clears up the other reason for people denying the resurrection is that in the morning, Jesus' disciples went to the wrong tomb. Uh, no, they didn't. They knew exactly where the tomb was, Right? Luke makes this clear here, right? And we, they knew exactly where it was. In fact, Mark in Mark 15, 47 says this, that the women, right? Think about how obvious this is. You ready? Listen to this. The women saw where he was laid. Think they knew where he was? Tells us. It's, they, they knew where he was laid. Listen now. So they knew exactly where it was. In Matthew 27, it tells us during this time, they're actually sitting opposite of the tomb while Joseph of Arimathea is getting them, all mixed, uh, getting them all ready. They're sitting opposite of the tomb. They know exactly where this tomb is. So what do they do? Verse 56, it says, then they returned and prepared spices and ointment. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. And so they, they go home, they prepare these spices. They're gonna bring them on Sunday after the Sabbath. They rested on the Sabbath as commanded in Exodus chapter 20. And Jesus, just like them, is resting on the Sabbath. Just like God in creation completed his work and then what? Rested. So Jesus has completed his work and on the Sabbath, he's at full what? Rest. And so this is divine timeline here. And... Uh, and so this is the consent, and it points to more just the fulfillment 
of the prophecy, the burial account, fulfillment of the fact that this is the Messiah, that this is God's timeline, that the scriptures are being fulfilled, that Jesus was confirmed dead and he was put in a grave. And so this is God's providence. Can I tell you something? You know what miracles are? Miracles are when God suspends reality. He suspends suspends natural laws and performs um, these acts that defy natural, natural laws, right? You know what providence is? It's when God works and orchestrates everything in reality to accomplish his plan. By the way, providence is far more astounding than miracles are. We get really caught up and amazed by miracles. Providence is far more astounding because God at every point in history orchestrates every event in life to accomplish his plan at all times with every person on the planet since the beginning of time. And he's orchestrating all of this to accomplish his great purpose and plan. Now we're almost done. Let me just show you this last point here. Number three, we see the control. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're just gonna see this last point. And uh, we're gonna see that not only have we seen confirmation, not only do we see in this burial account consent, but we also see control. Matthew chapter 27 verses 62 through 66. It says this, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, that's the Sabbath day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So listen, now what we see on the backside of this is Matthew gives us account of the Jews trying to control the narrative. We got the confirmation of his death. We got the consent of his body and his burial. And now we see the Jewish leadership trying to control the whole situation. They're trying to control the narrative. They're going to put some guards here, which only are going to serve to bolster the claim of Christ's resurrection. Because you got guards there who now also are frozen and, and uh, overpowered and overcome. And, and you're going to have the fact there's no way he could, his body can be stolen because you got guards here. So listen now, that's what happens, right? What they meant for evil, God meant for what? Good. It's only going to serve his purposes to bolster the claims of the resurrection. And so let me just point these, these verses out to you briefly. Verse 62 says, the next day, that is, and, and you got to understand, Matthew's trying to make it crystal clear here. What day is this that they're going to do this on? The Sabbath. The next day, that is, let me make, make it more specific, the day after the preparation, that is Saturday. That's the Sabbath. So they're so big on getting this person off the tree because of the curse. It's got to happen so fast because they got to take the Passover and not defile themselves. This is so important because they can't have a person on the cross on the Sabbath. And yet on the Sabbath, they're going into a Gentile's headquarters, which is forbidden. And they're going to make sure that the 
that the body is, is heavily guarded and they can control this. And they're defiling self, themselves here. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. They gather before Pilate. They're defiling themselves on the Sabbath. This is a sign of unbelief. They pick and choose what they're going to obey as long as uh, it serves them. It's a sign that this is all about what serves them. It's a sign that they're still their own God. And by the way, that again, that's what happens when we pick and choose what we want to obey from the word. If we pick and choose what we want to obey from the word, God's not God. Who's God? You are. You are. You're still in control. You might say he's in control, but he's in control until you don't want him to be in control. By the way, that often happens time with the church. I'll submit to leadership as long as I want to, then I don't want to submit to leadership. Well, that means that you were never submitted to leadership, Right? So this is what, this is just further clarifying their hypocrisy. Verse 63, it shows how they still feel about Jesus. They said, sir, we remember how this what? Imposter. He's not the Messiah. We still don't believe it. He's an imposter. He's not the Christ. He said while he was still alive after three days, I will rise. Verse 64, therefore order that the tomb be made secure until the day, the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than, than the first. They're trying to control the situation, make sure he doesn't gain a following even after death. And we lose out on our authority or be proven to be wrong, right? So go put a guard there to the third day. Would you do that, Pilate? Verses 65 through 66, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. In other words, here's a guard of, of, of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Again, the pilot grants the request here. And again, it debunks the third reason for people's denial of the crucifixion that the body was what? Stolen. Uh, all three of them in the burial account are debunked. First, you've got to understand the disciples would never do that because they're terrified. They've scattered at this point. They're all over the place. We don't know where they are. They're hiding underneath a rock. And, uh, but now this detachment of Roman soldiers is here. In Matthew 28, you know, that tells us that Jewish leadership still claims that the body's stolen. And so this is just the continued unbelief. The Jews, they don't point, point to the falsity of the resurrection by pointing to proof, but by pointing to um, claims of theft, claims of the body wasn't there, he wasn't dead. They went to the wrong tomb. And uh, no evidence really for their arguments at all. So the Jews try to control this by putting a band of soldiers there. They want Pilate to make it secure. Pilate consents to them. And they went to the tomb, sealing the stone, setting the guard. This is the account of the burial. Now listen, church, as we close this, you got the burial account. And what you have is you've got a confirmed death You've got a body buried and you've got an attempted control over his tomb. That's a pretty good setup for resurrection, isn't it? You got a dead man who's buried and there's guards at his tomb. God's setting us up. We're gonna see an incredible resurrection as we move on. But this burial account just further confirms this is the Messiah. The Messiah is dead. 
He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. God's in complete control. The scriptures are true. This is the savior and he's dead. He's buried. And he's got a guard outside his tomb. Let's pray. Father, we come and we're thankful for your word. It tells us things we don't know. And oftentimes a passage that so, we so overlook in the account of the burial of your Christ. But the burial points us to the fact that he is your Christ. That all of this is a divine plan. That you're in complete control. Jesus is in control at every point of this. You've been showing us that over and over and over and over again. Since really the beginning, you've been showing us that Christ is in control. He willingly laid down his life and he's dead. He died we see this, the literal death of Christ. We believe it. He was buried. And all of this, you were intricately working in your providence to further confirm the testimony of his Messiahship. And yet even their plans to control the situation and put guards outside the tomb would serve your means to further bolster the claim that he rose from the dead. We're amazed by you. We believe in the Christ. John tells us that all of this is so that is told to us that we would believe. Help us to believe. Help us to believe this account. And this is a perfect setup. You got a confirmed death. You've got a burial and you've got some guards outside. What a wonderful, masterful, beautiful setup for a resurrection. Lord, as we celebrate the Christmas season, I think it's no coincidence that you have us in a place where we celebrate the, the death of Christ. Because we, as we sang earlier, as our kids sang, this is the one who came to die. The purpose of his birth was his death. And we're thankful. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room today who doesn't know Christ, they would trust in him today. And if there's anyone who's living in darkness, that they would turn from them, their sins and follow this true Messiah, this Savior. It's in your name we pray, amen.